0: Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup, on-farm research and demonstration, with host Chantal McCrae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts, to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesdays of each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary-Jane Orr, project leads for various projects... MBFI's team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials, and events at MBFI as well as producer profiles from around the province, and information on their trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at We are back today with Mary Jane Orr, who is the general manager for Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, Inc., where she leads a dedicated team to advance the Manitoba beef and forage industry through engaging stakeholders, evaluating on-farm innovation, and extension for sustainability of farmers, the public, and the environment. She deeply values the opportunity to collaborate with producers, researchers, education providers, extension specialists, conservation groups, and all stakeholders in field testing management practices and growing understanding of improved production in Manitoba. Mary Jane holds a PhD from Purdue University in Soil Microbial Ecology in Agricultural Systems and is a professional agrologist and certified crop advisor. Her experience in ecology and field agronomy gives her a unique perspective on the challenges facing agriculture today. Welcome back to the podcast today, Mary Jane. Before we jump into talking about the project on investigating the effects of bale placement and binding. Can you give us a quick update about what's been happening at MBFI and any upcoming events that are happening this winter? Sure thing. Thank you, Chantel. Well, it's been
1: a busy summer. We've headed into a pretty busy fall again. We've had uh, Manitoba Agriculture hosting a cattle nutrition workshop in November at the MBFI Learning Center. We have also wrapped up the 2022. Farmers for Climate Solutions and Canadian Forage and Grasslands Association advanced grazing systems mentorship workshops this fall. And that's where, in November, producers developed and refined their grazing plans on smaller workshops. And now looking forward, I'm looking forward to just next week, we'll be going out to the Western Canada Conference on Soil Health and Grazing out in Edmonton from December 13th to 15th. I had the opportunity to attend that conference way back in 2019. And so I'm really looking forward to going back to that conference. They have a fantastic speaker lineup that really balances research as well as a lot of producer perspectives. So looking forward to uh, heading out to Edmonton in December here. And then another step forward into January, we'll be uh, looking at the Beef and Forage Week that Mental Agriculture will be hosting from January 10th through to the 12th. And there'll be a number of events with a full day programming on January 11th in Austin. So stay tuned for more details coming out on that. We'll also be hosting a booth at the Ag Days this year. So this will be our first time at Ag Days. So you'll be sure to come and visit us in the MMP Hall later in January. And I don't know, I'll probably blink my eyes and it'll be spring again. So
0: <laughs> we'll see how we feel. More things lined up. It's always very busy. Yeah. Today, we were talking about a project that was investigating the effects of bail placement and binding. In a bale grazing system that was undertaken in 2019. Can you share a bit of information on how and why this project began?
1: This was actually one of the first projects developed and carried out by MBFI staff. So a previous team member with MBFI, Christelle Harper, uh, she brought the project forward and really built off her own family farm's experience with bale grazing, As well as previous research that had been carried out at Lakeland Agricultural Research Association, or LARA. They did a 2013 study on bale grazing wastage estimation. And when she read through that, she saw some really interesting aspects, had her own questions about when you're setting out bales, just how much of it is wasted. You know, you have like, how do you eyeball that? It's such a challenging thing to estimate. And so she brought forward it in a research proposal. It was reviewed by our research advisory committee, and then it was carried out over the winter in 2019, the 2019 through to 2020
0: winter. Perfect. And we're going to talk a lot about the specifics of what you found during that study shortly. But before we get into that, can you tell me what the benefits are?
1: Oh, where to start? There's so many benefits. So a lot of people are using bale grazing and- you can kind of get hung up on the words a little bit, but you can think of it as either true bale grazing where it's more extensive. And this is a system that we do use at MBFI where primarily we use it with like a green feed. And instead of making full size, like 65 inch bales, we might make smaller bales and drop them out of the back of the baler. And then we graze them where they fall. So it's much more kind of extensive. It's fewer bales to the acre, and we strip graze the bales where they were dropped out of the baler and with any regrowth. So that would be really grazing the forage of that field that just so happened to be baled and returned back and all kind of cycled within that one field. The more common application would be a more intensive form of bale grazing, and that's where you're actually importing feed. So you're importing purchased bales, That hay feed that is then placed in a grid system. The spacing of the bales at MBFI, we use 33 foot centers. So 33 feet between the center of each bale. Some people may place them a little bit closer. um, Some people may place them a little bit further apart. And that's laid out in a grid that you can then either graze as a whole pod. So there's some producers that just put however many bales out in, a, in an area and give cows full access to that whole allocation. Or you may have different varieties of feed with, within that bale pod or grid of bales. Then you may wanna actually use temp fencing and strip graze that through the winter or through the period of winter grazing that you're using it. And so there's a lot of benefits, no matter which approach, which of these approaches you may be applying, you have an investment of time in your fall setup. So you're, you're transporting the bales to the field, you're setting them out in the grid, you're removing the bale twine from them typically. And so you have, you know, your investment of time and energy in putting out that bale paw. But once it's there, then you're really not needing to fire up the tractor again. So you're automatically seeing savings um, in lower tractor hours, reduced fuel consumption, savings and labor in that you're not having to go and fire up the tractor every single day. And this is a comparison to what like uh, a daily feeding in a dry lot system would be where you're basically firing up a tractor every day and, and feeding your cows daily. Whereas when you have that grid of bales out extensively on the field, then you're giving them anywhere from three to five, maybe a weekly allocation. And so you're going out and you're checking your cows daily, but you're not having to fire up the tractor and it's much quicker just to move the temp fence along. So you're saving a lot on labor. And then also the big benefit is compared to a dry lot system is yardage. So you're not having manure hauling or you're not having to clean out your corrals or your feeding pens. And the cows are really doing the work for you by applying that manure to the field as they move through their grazing system. And so that kind of leads to one of the most positive ones. Um, and this can actually be a bit of a positive or a negative, depending on the management of it. But when you put, bales out in the field and you graze them in the field you're having a lot of nutrient capture in that area so all the manure and urine and then all the residue of that feed that creates a really nice residue pack that decomposes over time are all contributing a substantial amount of nutrients to that field so this can be a really fantastic tool for rejuvenation of perennial stands especially targeting fields that are grazed, like perennial pasture fields that maybe are a little bit marginal. So when they get that injection of increased residue cover and more nitrogen and phosphorus, following year's growth is phenomenal. Some of the downsides of that could be, you know, in the first year in really thick residue areas, there may not be as much regrowth, but that comes back with time.
0: What are some of the challenges that might arise with using this type of a system?
1: So, I mean, based on last winter, the first thing that pops to my mind is uh, the challenge of weather and if you have major storm events and major snow drifting events. So in previous years, you know, we maybe didn't receive as much snow and hold on to it as much as we did just this last year, but that can be a real challenge. If you're trying to move temp fences and, you know, you have a six foot drift in front of the next row of bales, that can be pretty daunting. Another big challenge, which is as much of a benefit as I mentioned before, is that additional fertility that you get out of bale grazing. That is, if you're being careful and mindful and targeted in where you're placing your bale grazing and really ensuring that where you're placing those bales and doing your winter feeding isn't going to contribute to a spring runoff into surface waterways and that all of that fertility will stay where you place it and that it is going into your future years of forage growth. If you're not being mindful, there is a high risk of having all of that fertility that you're putting onto your field running off and causing some issues in terms of excess nutrient leaching. So it is really important that you rotate your grazing sites so that you're putting your winter bale feeding in a different place every year and that you're being mindful of where your like, spring melt is gonna be happening and that that isn't running off the field on you. Another big challenge that we've seen in previous years is just the pricing and access to hay supply. There is a value to, um, when we talk about later in this project, kind of considering you're going to have higher wastage or residue remaining in a winter bale feeding situation in the field versus in a dry lot or in bale feeding rings, you are going to have higher wastage. So in most years, the benefit of that fertility is going to outweigh any consideration for loss of feed or the price of feed. But if you're in a situation where feed supply is very, very tight, and you may not have enough feed to feed your cows through winter due to the drought or due to just access and pricing of feed, then this future year benefit of that extra residue may need to be kind of a a cost-benefit analysis of to whether or not that investment for future growth versus can you make it through winter is always an important, like very pragmatic consideration
0: for every farmer. So when you're thinking about this project. What were the objectives that you were hoping to find? For this project, we wanted to build on previous
1: work, both from from Lara, but also from the ongoing extensive grazing project that Sean Kaybeck would have presented on, on this podcast in a previous episode, where he compared, you know, different ways of extending grazing um, throughout the winter. We really wanted to dig a little bit deeper and think about, does it matter how bales are placed? And does the binding material used have an impact on the amount of residue, or if you want to call it wastage, uh, remaining the following spring season? And so we looked at going with bale grazing from December all the way through to April. We kind of replicated pods where we had four bales. And these bales were either bound with like a plastic twine or with sisal twine. And they were either placed on their ends or they were placed on their sides. And then we grazed those four bales as a single allocation, targeting three days for four bales for the group of cows that we had on there. We did that kind of throughout the whole winter season so we could see if there was different patterns at different times of the year when they went through those bale pods. So they were inserted into kind of the broader bale grit for the whole winter grazing season. And that kind of boils down to with sisal twine, while it was selected, is that one of the most time-consuming parts about the false setup is removing the twine. And so if you used sisal twine, which is made out of plant fibers and it decomposes and has been shown to not be a hazard for potential animal consumption, will its higher cost of investing in the sisal twine kind of be a trade off with time savings and not having to remove the twine in the fall as well
0: along with that setup what else occurred prior to the winter grazing season in order for you to measure that remaining residue
1: so we set it up at our johnson farm site and so that is some of our more marginal pasture and it's dominated by metal brome and it really does have lower productivity and lower fertility so that made it a great site to to do our winter bale grazing And the bales, as I mentioned, were placed in a slightly tighter grid. So they were only 30 feet between the bale centers. That was about 48 bales per acre. And within that broader grid, we did place five different pods so that the first one was grazed in December. And then the second one was like late January. And then the third was kind of the middle of February. The fourth was in the middle of March, and the last one was grazed, Those like that little subset of four bales was grazed on March 24th, and this was all like kind of 2019 through to 2020. And then, as I mentioned, we had plastic twine that was placed on its side or on its And, and then same thing with the the sisal twine. So one of the big things that can influence wastage is the palatability and the quality of the feed. So all the bales that were either plastic or sisal uh, twine bound were uh, made at our Brookdale farm from the same hay field. And so we were able to ensure consistent quality so that there wouldn't be any variation in the type of feed that we put up for the evaluation. And we did do feed tests to ensure that it was all consistent. And then to prep the area, we had uh, 30 feet by 30 feet under each of these four bales was covered with this woven geotextile tarp. And so that could be permeable to water, but it would retain all of the residue that would have gone out kind of in that ring around where the bales were consumed. And that allowed us to do a complete residue collection in the spring. And similar to the LARA study, we did, in the small little window of time, as the snow melted and warmed up, but before everything was completely mushy, we did go through all of those replicated pods and throw out or remove any obviously big pieces of manure so that we would remove that from the weight contribution. And I should add one big difference from the Lara project. When they evaluated bale grazing, their system was a little bit different in that they set out bales in a grid. They only placed them in one orientation and they controlled the cows access to those bales. So their access was just from like nine in the morning till 4 p.m. And then they were moved out of that bale pod and Housed, kind of bedded down in a different area and then kind of moved in and out every year because I really wanted to see just the action of feeding wastage from that. So our evaluation was very much how a farmer would use bale grazing in the field. So the cows did have complete access to everything that had previously been grazed. So we didn't do any back fencing and they would graze the next allocation every three days on average. And so when we did see them, they would kind of go from eating other bales and then have an allocation to these four bales on project, and then they kind of get moved into the next move again. So the tarps were an incredibly important piece. There was definitely a learning curve in figuring out how best to orientate them and roll them out and pin them down to the ground. And I'm really surprised we didn't lose all of our summer students at the beginning because summer students start in May. So that was prime manure plucking, (laughs) uh, (laughs) dealing with the residue of these bale projects. So those poor summer students, they didn't know what they were in for. And I should say each of those orientations and binding types was randomized within those four bales in each one of those five kind of replicates areas. And so when it rolled around to spring, there was quite a challenging learning curve to figure out, okay, how do we get a total weight? On all of this residue that's there, how do we make the judgment call on removing the manure that is independent manure versus fully integrated manure? And so we did have to reach a point where we had to kind of make a judgment call and say that the amount of manure that was very fine particle would be consistent across all of the bales and kind of assume that there would be a margin of error in what the actual like hay residue wastage is versus the additional contribution of the manure weight in there. But we did do our best effort to remove all of the excess manure that was there. So come around spring, we try to deal with the manure that was in the pack and then they really smooshed it all together and then we had like a weigh bin, kind of similar to how you would weigh bales, and we developed it so that we could basically pick it all up and then weigh it in, in these larger bins and then get a total weight. And then we took subsamples that were then oven dried, and that would give us a dry weight estimation, and then we kind of figured out our total dry weight of the residue that was left in all the, in all the different bale pods for the different four placements and by two placements and two binding materials. So kind of that split plot design. The prep work was extensive with the tarps and I'd say the worst, the most challenging part and this is what led to it being a one-year study just because of the time commitment of dealing with the residue was that it was very, very intensive getting that whole weight um, as you can imagine. And if you're walking in the field it's quite the undertaking to try and get that whole estimate of the residue so it was a really great exercise in going through and weighing it and we are set up to do it again in the future but i don't think we'll be doing that was a pretty big challenge was the the weighing of the spring residue material for sure
0: i'm glad you added that because i actually wasn't sure how it had been collected and weighed and you set up all of the bales for the entire winter in the fall correct
1: Correct. Yeah, we do. And we pull the string. Another kind of thing we've learned is to leave the last couple of rows. So leave the string on the last couple of rows just in case they either graze a little bit faster or if spring conditions change so that the bales are still bound and intact. So that if we do need to cut some strings in the spring, that's not so bad versus being stuck with bales that have been cut and they're ready to move into a different pasture. So we've definitely learned that curve. The one interesting thing about the sisal twine is that we did notice it in the spring residue. So there was still like it's going to take time for that twine to decompose. And so that kind of led to the side comment that while it will decompose, again, being careful in how you select your field location. So if that was a hay field and you were planning on haying it, You know, you would have to have some time for that sisal twine to decompose. So you could end up having it caught up if you were haying that field. But if you were grazing it the next year, then it wouldn't be an issue at all. So it kind of is always a trade off between your goals and your management decisions for that field for the next year.
0: It's a good thing to kind of have in the back of your mind, too.
1: Yeah. And the sisal twine, like it had been a, we had some late moisture in the fall of 2019. And so a lot of the sisal bales actually, because they would gotten damp on the bottom. So from the time we harvested them from the field and had them stacked, and then we moved them to where we were doing the bale grazing study, they had actually kind of already rotted out on the bottom. So that would be another consideration that wasn't really an outcome of the project, but more of just an observation that, yeah, when we were moving them around, they would just break apart before they got to where they were supposed to go was maybe less than ideal as well.
0: If you're long distance hauling or purchasing your hay from somewhere and having it shipped in, that would be something to consider as well. For sure. What did you find for differences in consumption between the different twine types?
1: We really didn't see a major difference in consumption or vice versa, like how much residue was remaining afterwards between the two types of. Binding material, or even between whether or not a bale was end placed or side placed. Like there was enough variability in the data that we really didn't see a clear statistical difference between any of the four scenarios. There was a trend towards the sisal twine end placed. The average was slightly lower, but overall across all of them, it was fairly comparable. And it really ranged around that 30% residue. So kind of the 70% of the bale was used by the cows. And so that is quite a bit higher than when we looked at what the results were from the LARA project, where their results were more like the 12 to 14% wastage. That really, I think, We didn't evaluate moving the cows in and out. So I think where you have a lot of the increased spoilage or wastage or contribution to next year's fertility, however you want to look at it, is due to the cows bedding down where they're eating. And so we don't set out a separate area for the cows with straw to bed down in, or they're sleeping where they're eating, if that makes sense. So you do see that higher level of of spoilage. When they're bedding down and urinating and defecating where they're eating. So they will not want to eat through that. And so you do end up having lower utilization where you're having them bedding down in their
0: feed. Do you think that that would be different if there was straw provided as well?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. So one thing that I should have mentioned as a concern earlier is uh, having appropriate shelter. That ties into, you know, where you're picking your field location. So where you're setting up your bales, you need to make sure that you have adequate winter water access and that you have adequate shelter because you are having your livestock on land. And so at the Brookdale Farm, we have not with the bale grazing, but with the corn grazing we have put out straw in like some of the lower lying areas of the field. And that does help. But with the bale grazing, no, like they seem to kind of eat out a little hole of where the bale is in the kind of depending on how thick the snow or how heavy and high the snow is. And they tend to kind of hunker down in where they're eating and palatability of the feed will make a difference as well. So this was a fairly high palatability. So this is an alfalfa grass high quality feed so its palatability was pretty high but as soon as they're bedding in it it just adds to to spoilage and I mean that's pretty well recognized I mean that's why bale rings are pretty effective and then it keeps the feed in where the cows out of they can just get into it to eat and so you have lower wastage but it's that trade-off balance between is it actually wastage if it's providing residue cover to your ground that, you know, improves your water infiltration into your field and providing a nutrients fertility for next year's forage growth. It's really probably a three year contribution of fertility for that perennial pasture stand. So it's always a trade off there in terms of is that a negative or a positive? And it probably boils down to each operation and where they're sourcing their hay from and how expensive it is and if they can afford to have it go down as fertility or if it has to go into the cow.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say it sounds like it's very dependent on your mindset, on
1: completely yeah. what you're
0: wasting or gaining, depending on how you think about it. Well, and it may
1: change year to year. This last year for MBFI, our feed supplies were very tight, so we were just doing standard bale grazing just for our winter management of our herd, and the winter was a lot harder than we anticipated it, and we knew we were going to be tight, and so for the last kind of for March. We, it sounds crazy. We'd already set out the bale pods, but we had extra bale ring feeders. And so we actually ran out there and popped, just dropped bale rings over top of the bale pod. We still gave them the same allocation, but they just couldn't bed down in the next allocation. So they had access to whatever they'd already grazed still, but we were able to really stretch our feet a lot further by minimizing our wastage. But that was because we were really short on feed because we were coming out of a a drought and the feed supply was incredibly expensive. And that was like a pragmatic budget decision Mm
0: -hmm. on how
1: we can stretch as far as we can by utilizing kind of hopscotching these bale rings along for the last month just to stretch that extra 20% of hay per bale made all the difference this last (laughs) spring.
0: And that's a really interesting thing to add in, I think for listeners to consider if they have a year where they're coming up on spring and they're finding themselves low on feed that I'm going to say most farms probably have bail rings that are sitting out back that haven't been used. And if you can fix them up and then use them, it's a bit more hassle and a bit more time, obviously, but it gives you that option of not having to try and scramble for feed or if there isn't feed available or it's at astronomical prices, you don't have to try and get that to add into your program.
1: Well, it was all of the above. And I don't think we're any different from a lot of other operations in that we were trying to look at all things on the table. Last spring, we also brought in pea straw and added liquid feed to it to supplement stockpile grazing in the spring. So it was like, we we got pretty creative in just how we could stretch what we had as far as we can. And that was specific for the challenges of that year. In any other year, we would be more than happy to see that as an investment in the next growing seasons for fertility. And so I think it's it's probably going to be very operation specific and what their threshold of investment versus, you know, utilization efficiency is always going to be a trade-off and dependent on each person's thresholds. But for this project, the main takeaway from the variability that we saw across the five pods, the four bales replicated and kind of randomized was that it really didn't statistically show a difference. But visually, our experience has been a preference to place bales on their side because we find when we place them on their ends, they do slough, like the sides of the bales slough down. And you can see kind of uh, more weathering, again, depending on weather conditions. If you have really strong fall winds, it can kind of rip away quite a bit of, of the forage and cause it to become more weathered before they get to grazing it. And so for us, we, in our general management, what we've taken away from Sean K. Back's extended grazing studies and from our own farm application of bale grazing is to place bales on their sides. We use 33 foot centers, having them on their sides, kind of with their backs against the wind, if that makes sense, so that the face of the bale isn't in the you know, prevailing winds so that the wind isn't peeling the bale apart, depending on how sheltered your areas are. That's been found to kind of have the bales remain more intact. So that's kind of our, our personal opinion of what uh, works better. But the project didn't indicate a significant difference. Got kind of roughly, you know, around that 30% of wastage, regardless. And it wasn't a heavy snow winter. So again, this is only just one year. I think in years, maybe where you have way, way, way more snow, or you have a snowstorm right when they go into a grazing allocation, that could affect their utilization as well.
0: We were also looking at economics during this project and labor was included. So what differences were there in labor time and cost between the different treatments, knowing that the sisal twine was left on and the other twine was removed prior to their grazing?
1: So we are assuming Our fixed costs are going to be the same for the bales. So the cost of making the bales was the same. The cost of uh, like actually cutting, raking, baling, any kind of value that we would allocate to where the bales are going is all being considered the same. So really the, the standout pieces that would be economically different between the two different binding materials was the investment of the actual twine and the labor to remove or to not remove twine in the fall. And so the sisal twine is substantially more expensive. So these are 2019 costs. When the study was done and when it was reported, the cost per bale of sisal twine was about $2.65 versus the like standard plastic twine was uh, $0.72 a bale. So we had a big price gap in you know, a higher investment in the biodegradable, twine, but the labor to remove the twine, it was valued at $25 an hour. And we said that it takes us about five minutes per bale to remove twine. Now that could vary quite a bit, depending on if you're having your kids remove the twine, it's probably going to be pretty cheap and take them much longer. (laughs) But we, uh, Kind of gotten pretty efficient at like kind of cutting all the strings, putting the strings all together, and then wrapping them around. I've had some staff wrap it around a hitch on a quad and just pull away and that pulls it simply out. For me, I've done it where I use like a long wrench or a long heavy duty screwdriver and wrap around the screwdriver and that gives me the leverage to rip it out all the strings together. And so if you assume that $25 an hour or five minutes per bale, that works out to about $2.08 per bale in labor. And so actually the plastic twine came out a little bit more expensive at, so $2.80 a bale, where the uh, sisal twine bales were two sixty-five dollars a bale in 2019 just for the twine. So that's like a 15 cent difference. Given the very, like how you would maybe adjust the labor, I mean, we really could say it's a bit of a wash in terms of there being like a price point difference. What we didn't account for is if you had any labor to walk the field and pull the sisal twine and if it was a hay field. So if you were grazing in the next year, the sisal twine really wouldn't make a difference because it would all decompose over a year or two. But if it was in an annual crop, if for some reason you decided to put your bale pot on an annually cropped field, or if you're looking at putting it into a hay field and you were wanting to cut and rake that growth the next year, that sisal twine would get bound up and affect next year's harvesting. So again, it's all, <laughs> all depends, but uh it really didn't stand out as one being a really clear winner over another and that it would ultimately boil down to preference
0: and what works in your system. Throughout kind of all of this conversation, a lot of it is dependent on how producers think and what their values are and what's really important to them on their farms. But just generally, why is all of this important to share with producers?
1: Well, I think people should think about extended grazing practices because there are savings to be had in minimizing equipment use. I mean, that alone, I think is a big win to consider, especially with increasing fuel costs and increasing emphasis on consideration of our carbon footprint. And we do know that feeding bales on the field in perennial pastures are contributing a lot of residue and fertility that is going to see a lot more forage productivity and that's going to be a net win for future grazing capacity so you really are investing in your future growth potential of your field a modest would be doubling your forage productivity like some studies have shown your forage productivity being five times more forage the next year you're going to have some areas of thick residue where the grass won't grow through but um just the gains you see in building the structure of your soil, the quality of your soil, and the fertility for forage growth is it, it can just completely turn around a marginal pasture. like it I've heard some speakers promoting the management practice as really kind of being a silver bullet to kind of just flipping a marginal pasture on its head. And so that just as a, a means of rejuvenating your pasture is a pretty straightforward low cost way to do that. I mean, you just put bales out on a marginal area you want to improve, feed your cows out there, you know, assuming that you're making sure they have shelter and they have access to water and that there's not going to be any negative environmental outcome from any spring runoff from those areas. So there's just a lot of benefit to be had from from bale grazing. And it has been something that's been around for quite some time. And I think a lot of producers have adopted it already. Where there's areas to kind of tweak it to make it even more efficient, I think, is where you can play with if you're putting out mixtures of feed quality. So some may include like a lower quality feed with a higher quality feed and kind of mixing that in one allocation and then strip grazing it all the way through. Another consideration as a potential challenge is that with any management practice, your animals have to be well suited to it. So, there are some animals that may not thrive under extended grazing practices. So, it is that is an important consideration if you're thinking of switching to it, is that you may have to have a backup plan if you need to pull some cows that may not thrive or be competitive enough. Because if you don't have enough access for grazing, High quality feed when you give them the next allocation, you could run up against some cows being out competed and not getting the same access to the same quality of feed, and then them kind of not having the higher performance that you may want to see or maintaining their body condition at the right level that you want to see them maintaining it at. For us at MBFI, it's something that's a practice that we've studied in the demo projects that we've mentioned from Sean K. Baxter and Grazing, and then this evaluation of residue, but it's also a core practice that we implement every year that just makes sense for our cost of production and for really improving our land as we go forward.
0: Are there any next steps for this project or any further research that you're doing kind of with this idea in mind?
1: Not currently. I think, as I kind of alluded to earlier, a big barrier on the labor side was just to do it again. We have all the equipment we need to do it again, but it was an enormous time commitment to gather those residue samples and process them and dry them. And and we didn't see anything that, like a trend that maybe looked really promising versus like if we did another year, we could kind of flush out a, a closer detail. So I think really the takeaway message that you are going to have wastage or you are going to have residue from bale grazing and that when cows are bedding in where they're feeding, you're going to have higher wastage. And if another, like if a question comes forward that we haven't thought about yet, or like if a producer has a certain angle that they wanted to evaluate, there's always on the table to, to do the study again or to tweak it in a way. But right now, currently within the staff, we're, we're not planning on weighing all that residue again, anytime soon.
0: And is there anything else about this study that you would like to share with the listeners before we wrap up today?
1: Only that there are a lot of resources available on really detailed costs of evaluating winter bale grazing. Like I mentioned, and I believe we've had a a previous podcast episode from Sean K back on this, and that there's a lot of resources available on, you know, the things you need to think about when you're setting up bale grazing. And there's also a lot of producers that are really successful in using this on their operations. So you'll probably be not too far away from a neighbor that is already doing this and seeing a lot of benefits from it.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me again to discuss another project. And I'm sure that we will be talking to you again soon. Thank you very much, Chantel. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, Ducks Unlimited Canada, and the Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Forage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project supporter, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. We've got lots to share.